again, I appreciate you uh, tuning in and being a part of these of these particular sessions. I have been on this study in Romans chapter eight for some time, and uh, thank you very much for going along with me on this journey. Today, again, um, we're going to get into a, a segment of this chapter of Romans eight that many people hold to with a, a certain eschatological bent. And as I have said throughout these um, sessions, I believe that to do that to these verses, to put it off into the future, to make these things futuristic in their intention and in their accomplishment is to denigrate Paul's point because it divorces what Paul is saying in these particular parts of Romans 8 from what he has been saying throughout this letter. Again, we have to read the letters of Paul to the churches as letters. Letters do not jump around like we interpret the Bible. Letters are not going to have this wonderful flow of a thought and a theme and a point and then say, boom, all of a sudden it's 2,000 years later and it doesn't fit with the particular current context. So I want to keep it in context because I think that will do, do us a great deal of... Um, benefit us if we keep it in the context. I'll say it that way. And understand, I think, much better what Paul is trying or is saying in this letter to these believers. Let me go ahead and begin by reading the verses that we are going to focus on today. And that's Romans chapter 8, verse 22. We'll start there. Now, I'm reading from the Young's literal translation in these particular verses. Romans 8, 22, verse uh, 22 through 25. For we, for we have known that all the creation doth groan together and doth travail in pain till now. And I think till now is a very um, underestimated term here. Many people just fly over that. But I think it's till now. Because Paul has come as a present carrier of a present truth to declare to these who we have, we've pinpointed that creation in our last podcast. If you haven't listened to that, I'd, I'd ask you to go back and listen to that, that the creation is not the trees and the rocks and the winds and the, you know, hurricanes and all that stuff. The creation is a creation that it plainly said God subjected to its own vanity in hope. And it's a creation that's waiting on the manifestation of the sons of God. That's not a tree. That is a particular people uh, that God had created for a testimonial purpose. And in so doing, he subjected it to its own vanity under the law. This is, this is what he's talking about. 
subjected it to its own emptiness, and that word vanity means empty as to result, meaning no, no one of that creation could actually produce the result that God had in mind because the result that God in, had in mind was not to be found in men, but in one particular man. Now, that corresponds contextually to everything Paul has been saying in Romans 6, 7, especially 7 in his own personal um, testimony as a man under the law who was attempting by the law to be righteous and holy, a man um, still married to the first man, the old man, that every time he would attempt to do the good of which the law testified, evil was still there because even though the external um, activities were ordered of God and were good, the internal state of the man attempting to do those things was contrary to that good. There was no compatibility to the external and the internal. And that's the thing that the law could never affect. The law could never bring about the internal transaction that would make righteousness a reality for the soul of man. Couldn't do it. And that's why at the beginning of this chapter, having on the heels of Romans 7, he says now he has become free from the law of sin and death, that internal law, that internal state, the government of sin and death, uh, being a man in Adam. He has been freed from that state by the law of life. And what the law could not do, that internal transaction to make the soul free from sin and death, to bring the soul or into the soul, a righteousness fulfilled, a righteousness the law testified of now fulfilled because the one of whom the law testified lives in that soul as the fulfillment of every requirement given of God. That's what we're addressing. That's the context here. And if we keep these things in mind, we understand that groaning creation that travails and is unpained Till now, as Paul's writing this, is that creation subjected to vanity under the law and is waiting on a moment where those were someone, the sons of God, we're going to talk more about the sons of God, would lay hold by faith of what they could not lay hold of by law, that they would hold by grace through faith what could not be produced by law observation and religion. And that's what we're addressing here. And so we see Paul looking at this creation and understanding himself, as we've already read in these chapters, that he is experiencing a release, a deliverance, a liberty that was intended for the children of God. He is already experiencing it. But he also knows that those who are not are still in a state of great groaning. But he also says that they're not the only ones groaning. We also groan because the adoption is that that we are expecting. And I want you to think about that as we go in this, because it's not about Paul still saying, we don't have it all yet. We have a down payment. And that's what most people look at when they say the first fruits of the Spirit. 
that we have a down payment now and we still just like them are waiting on the good thing, the, the fulfillment, the real to come, the, 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 the substance and the substantiation of all of God's promises. We're just like they are. And see, that's the whole point that we need to understand. To, to have that understanding is to say that believers and believers in Christ and the Jews who are still under the law are in the same place, are under the same expectancy, and they are basically in the same shape. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all, <laughs> at all. So let's read these verses and, and stop getting way ahead. For we have, we have known, again, from the Young's Literal, that all the creation doth groan together and doth travail in pain together until now. And not only so, but also we ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit, we also in ourselves grow. Adoption, expecting the redemption of our body. Verse 24, for in hope we were saved. Now, the King James will say, for we are saved by hope. The literal translation, and if you look the word up, you'll under in a interlinear, you'll see it. It's the word in. It is in the sphere of hope that we have been saved. And that hope beheld is not hope. For what any one doth behold, why also doth he hope for it? And if we do not behold, we hope uh, do not behold if what I'm sorry, and if what we do not behold we hope for. Through continuance, we expect. If we don't see what we're hoped for, we with patience and continuance do expect. Now, I'm going to read this also from the uh, Kenneth Weiss translation. I'm going to start in verse 19 here of things we covered in our uh, previous uh, episode. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's vanity, emptiness, fruitlessness. Not voluntarily, but on account of the one, capital, the one, who put it under subjection upon the basis of the hope that the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Take that as we have in previous, like I said, the, all of this is building on one another. Previous episodes cover this. If we go to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, we'll see that's not a future hope either. It's about coming from corruption to incorruptibility, and that's through the work of Christ in you. That's the work of being found in the second man who is the Lord from heaven, the man of spirit, not of the earth earthy, but the Lord himself from heaven. There's the deliverance, and the whole thing, the hope, was that the creation, would be delivered. Paul's already talked about that deliverance, that he himself individually is experienced. But again, he's telling them this is not just for me as an individual. This is not just my portion. This is the intention that God had for all men, especially first, primarily for those under the law. This is why he subjected them to this 
state of vanity. To show them their need of another life. To show them that they needed God to come in and superimpose his purpose, his, his life, his will within the soul. To transact a change internally that no observance of law could. And this is the deliverance from the bondage of corruption because that's an internal bondage. And that deliverance from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans, travails together up to this moment, up to this moment. What's different about this moment, Paul? This moment is the moment that they have been hoping for. This moment, this moment, as a partaker of that intention and hope fulfilled, Paul would say, this is the day of salvation. This is, this is the time where their hope has been realized and fulfilled in Christ. And this is why he is lamenting and, and groaning for them to truly take up the adoption that they were intended for. And in the meantime, also telling these believers, don't go back. Don't look to these elements of law. Don't look to these things, these the, the things of the flesh. Don't look to these things to do anything. God has provided this hope realized. God has brought this deliverance. He has brought this liberty. He knows those that he will speak of, and we'll, re we'll read it later. In this very letter, he speaks of those he's talking to right now, and he, he begins to talk about his lament over their condition. His heart's pain, constant, continual sorrow for his brethren who are Israelites, his brethren after the flesh, because he was a Jew. But he is a Jew who has made the transition from death unto life, from law to spirit, from flesh to spirit. And his groaning, his travail, his lamenting, his constant internal sorrow, so much so that he would say, I wish myself were cursed from Christ for their sake. Just like Moses did, just like Abraham. But particularly we know with Moses, he said, God, if you kill them, kill me too. His heart was so that they would be saved. We'll get into that. But the whole creation has grown to him all. first fruit of the spirit first fruit of the spirit we ourselves also are groaning within ourselves assiduously and patiently waiting the realization in full of sonship at the time of the redemption of the, our body for we are saved in the sphere of hope 
but hope that has been seen is not hope. For that which a person sees, why does he hope for it? But if that person we do not see, if, if that which we do not see we hope for, through patience we expectantly wait for it. Now, to me, Paul's language here is compelling, so compelling. He understood as one having experienced the spirit-wrought deliverance from the bondage of corruption. And now, as one enjoying, partaking of, possessing uh, the incorruption of spiritual life, the wording tells us Paul understood that this deliverance and the end of their subjection was affected solely through a redemptive work of God by which there could be a change of government. Again, internally, a transition from one government to another. We've talked about the Adam, the Adamic headship, from one headship to another, from one administration to another. We're going to talk about this. Many ways he says it throughout his letter. He was a man that desired for them who, to whom he was writing to enjoy it and those he knew were still waiting on it as something yet to happen. He was desiring that they would come to know and experience this redemptive work where there was a true severance from the body of death so that they would be found in the body of life or the living one himself in whom the righteousness of the law is fulfilled and conveyed to those who believe. This is the fulfillment expected. This is the hope impregnated into the very giving of the law. A translation. This is what he's talking about, this redemption of the body. Not talking about when this body changes and glows in the dark or able to walk through walls or is glorified one day up in heaven. This is about a change from one body to another. That's why he talks about the body of death, the body of life. He's just talked about who will deliver me from this body of death. As a man who has found or experienced and continually in growing understanding, experiencing this transition, he is praying and hoping and travailing for those who are yet bound by such in such a body of death to now be delivered and know the deliverance. This deliverance that such a work of redemption and translation takes place. Translation out of one man, out of one creation, translation from being underneath one administration to being brought by Christ through grace and be found in another man, another creation, and be under the government of another administration. Now, to me, You have to keep, again, this in context to understand. 
if we look at the word travail, this creation travaileth in pain until now. The word travail there is sunodino, sunodino. It is 4944, if you want to look it up in a Strong's Concordance. It is to have pains in company or concert. And it goes on to mean figuratively to sympathize in expectation of relief from sufferings. Sufferings. Remember, in, if you've listened to these before, you'll realize that we've gone into the sufferings in previous verses in this chapter, sufferings of this present time. The sufferings of this present time speaks to this. It's the sufferings of that age. A sufferings of being still held in that age within the confines and bondage of corruptibility. That's the sufferings of this present time. It is that suffering that he has been relieved from as a man who has now come to faith in Christ, who is now indwelt by Christ himself, who is now by the spirit of life delivered from the spirit, the law of death, the internal law of sin and death. So it is an expectancy of a relief from suffering. And to me, this travailing in pain until now, the nature of this travailing speaks directly to the sufferings of that age, which demanded righteousness without any internal provision of the requirement in question. It couldn't provide the thing it demanded. Nothing required was ever bestowed. It was demanded because the law couldn't give the life of which it testified. The law pointed to life and gave that creation under its subjection hope for one life that was coming. Paul does not want those who have come to this moment in time, to that moment where this reality was available, where the end of their hope had come. And this is, again, we've gone to him before Agrippa where he says, the hope that they are constantly in the temple waiting on has come in the resurrected Christ. Paul did not want them to live ignorant. He didn't want the believers who had such a reality within them to be ignorant of it. And he didn't want those who had not yet by faith apprehended such a reality that was available to them, everything they had been intended for. He didn't want them to live for the rest of their day <coughs> as if they were yet capable of partaking of it because God had given it as a gift. He had offered it to all who would come to him. The rest that was still remaining for those who would come and be found in him. That's the, that's the, that's the lamenting, that's the travailing and pain that Paul now has as a man who is possessing the spirit of truth and the spirit of life. He wants them to make the same transition. He wants them to apprehend the, the, the adoption they were intended for to become sons of God. 
a spiritual demand was on us and on these people by the law. Without ever affecting a spiritual incarceration to that soul which was fully natural and of the flesh. There was in that system given of God an innate expectation for relief from this suffering, from the sufferings of that present age, that present world. And this, this is a desire to be rid of the dictatorship of an administration of condemnation and death. To be brought by the spirit of God himself and translated into the administration of righteousness and life in Christ. From Calvin's commentaries of, of Romans 8.23, he says, The excellency of our glory. Now, again, he, say, he speaks of in the verse before that, and I hope you can follow where I'm going here. I know I'm jumping and, and saying a lot of things. I'm not, I don't like sticking on just one verse. We need, to, we need to see these things. You can listen to this over and over. When he says the excellency of our glory is of such importance, even to the very elements, which are destitute of mind and reason. Now he's talking, he thinks is talking about the stones and the, the trees. But I want to, I want you to see this phrase. The excellency of our glory is of such importance. What, what is he talking about? Well, we've just read in the previous verses that they would come to the liberty of the glory of the sons of God. What is that? Liberty and deliverance from the bondage of corruption. And this is saying the excellency or the exceedingness of, or the supremacy of our glory or that which is attained through faith in Christ is of such importance that that creation burns with a desire for it. Of course, they long for that. They long for that excellent reality, that more excellent thing. And Paul is telling them they can now possess it by faith. They can now apprehend it by faith through the grace of God. That's why he's led up to this through trying to differentiate the Jew and the Gentile, showing there's no differentiation. They all are in need of the grace of God because none are holy, none are righteous, no, not one. We'll read some of that in a moment. Going now to the man who could not produce anything because of the deadness of him, his body, Abraham, in, in Romans 4, and the deadness of his wife's womb, that he had to rely fully and trust completely in God's power who promised it to perform the thing he promised. Therefore, it was accounted to him as righteousness because he trusted another to bring it about. And this wasn't written just for him. Paul says it was written for us. That we may understand the true nature of righteousness. That we may understand the truth of our salvation and what God has wrought. 
then we're brought on to the headship of Adam or the headship of Christ, and he moves on to where we are right now. This is a, this is a, what we have come to through the true work of the grace and of God and what we by faith are standing in is of such significance, of such excellence. We're not still waiting on it. But Paul, knowing of how excellent the thing that he is now enjoying truly is, he is travailing in pain for them who have not yet known it, who still hold it as something yet to be, and are yet on the hamster wheel of religious activity trying to achieve what they can't. So, When we, there's a, there's a place that I want to go, and, and you may have never thought about it, may have, but there's a few verses that I want to look at in the light of Romans 8, 23. And I want us to look at it and realize the parallel that is between these. And see that Paul is saying the same thing here, and I'm not going to reread these verses. We could, but you can reread through Romans 8, 19 through 25 and see that. But we're going to go to a parallel, maybe said a little differently, but I think saying the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I think it's verses 1 through 10 maybe, but I don't know if we'll read that for but go there, and we're going to start reading. Now, I want to read, right before you get to chapter 5, you're going to read verse 18 of chapter 4, because this has a great deal to do with what we're talking about in chapter 5. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen. Now, we're going to go back to chapter 3 in a moment of 2 Corinthians. Again, see the whole context and see how it's saying the same thing Paul is addressing in Romans 8. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Again, what are the things seen? What are the things not seen? The things seen is, is about the law. The elements of the law, the ordinances of the law, the edifices of, that the law created, the temple, the offerings, the priesthood, all of the, all of the accoutrements of that system and that age. Paul says, I look not at those things. Why? Because he is seeing something greater than those things. He's seeing the very image of those things. He's seeing the substance that those things merely were a shadow of. So we don't look at those things. Why? Because we walk by faith, not by sight. That's in this same chapter, chapter four. 
We look at that which is not seen, not knowable by natural mind, not observable to natural eyes. We look at that because that's what's real. Because the things that are seen are only a temporary arrangement. Because at that very moment, he could still see them. He could still walk around and see the ceremonial elements of that system that he once uh, lauded and once boasted in. Now he understands that he possesses something much more significant, something exceeding in glory. Because what they only testified of, he possesses now internally. Those things that are not temporal, but that which is eternal, never moves, never changes, is eternal. That's what he looks at. That's what he sees. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle is resolved, we have, listen to these words, have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, if you take this into Hebrews, you'll see what he's addressing of a tabernacle not made with hands. He's not talking about some second spiritual temple that's yet to be built. He's talking about the true temple that is of the spirit, eternal. Because Hebrews uses this same terminology of the house not made with hands. That into which Christ has now entered, that which is not made with hands. Differentiating the first and the second, the law and the spirit, flesh and spirit, all of those different contrasts. We're doing it in a, in a different letter, just in a different way, but saying the same thing. Declaring the eternal nature of what we have in Christ. Thus, the exceeding nature of what we have in Christ. So we have, if this natural house this earthly house is dissolved. We already have a building of God. A house not made with hands. That's what I'm talking about again. That's not talking about if this natural body is, dies, we have a spiritual body. That's not what he's addressing. It's not what he's addressing. You have to go back, and we will in just a few seconds. Go back to chapter 3. What is he talking about? He's not talking about dead, uh, a fleshly body and a spiritual glorified body. He's talking about two administrations. And coming from the one to the other. The excellency of the one making null the, the glory of the other. What does this have to do with Rome? Everything. It has to do everything with Romans 8 what we're talking about now, because this is about this redemption, this adoption, the transition, the, the, the hope. It's everything. This is the full, this is, this is the point that Paul is making by saying we are saved in hope. Our salvation 
is hope fulfilled. That's what he's saying there. So if this house, earthly house, he knew it was coming, the destruction of the earthly natural edifices of that system, he knew that was coming. And this is what he's saying, guys, if this all falls down, this is basically kind of what Jesus says. If this not one stone is left upon another, guess what? I'm raising up a spiritual house. So if this thing is dissolved, if it's terminated and gone, we already have. We have. Not God is yet building. It's not quite done yet. No, we have a building of God. We have a house from heaven. Not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. That corresponds to what we just read. That which we are seeing. The place of our habitation. Christ himself. Now, verse 2. For in this we groan. In this state, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house that is from heaven. For if we, if so be that being clothed, we are not found naked. He's, again, the wording of this, people can interpret it and think about it and say, yeah, they're still waiting on that clothes. No, it's like Paul said, be ye clothed. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying our hope, our expectation, our perspective in the eternal things, not in the temporal things, is because our desire is to be clothed upon, to live as those who are cloaked and garbed with the house which is of heaven, the eternal, the glorious, the exceeding greater reality. Because we know that being clothed with him, we're not found naked. If all of this goes to hell in a handbasket and not one thing is left that we could see with our natural eyes, we are clothed with an unseen and eternal garment of glory. Christ himself. For we that are in this tabernacle, belong in that system, grown, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. It's not about getting rid of something. It's about putting on something so that the Mortality might be swallowed up of life. Where is that said? The same, different way, same thing being said. So that mortality would be swallowed up with immortality. That corruption would be put away and we would put on incorruptibility. That's a work of the Spirit through salvation. If we get our mindset out of the eschatological futuristic bubble, we could see that he's using this language to declare to them that what they have and what they can see are totally opposite. Calling them to enjoy the spiritual eternal and not to be wooed and not to be deceived to go back to the temporal and the natural.
he that hath wrought us, hath wrought us for the selfsame thing as God, who has given us the earnest of the Spirit, first fruits. Earnest is also a guarantee. He's guaranteed this reality in us. So while, therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We are to make our abode in that thing, that temporal, that natural, that earthly thing. We are absent from the Lord. There is a true separation. But we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, willing rather to be absent from this body so that we may be present with the Lord. Not to be in the shadows, but be partakers of the substance. That's the reality here being addressed. Same thing being said in Romans 8. It's not about something yet to come in the future. It's about him desiring that those who have the reality of the Spirit would enjoy that which they have, not be deceived to move back into it, but primarily it's so that those who are yet in that system under that rule and administration, still bound to that body of death, would put on Christ and be clothed with the greater house. So that the disillusion, the destruction of that earthly thing means nothing because they have the greater thing within them that cannot be moved, cannot be changed, cannot be put away. That's what we're seeing here, guys. I hope, you can, I hope you can follow where I'm going. I want us to get our mindset in a present reality Paul is addressing to these believers, not say, hey, guys, until this happens one day, we have nothing. That's exactly the opposite of what he said. It's about anchoring them in a substantive reality so that whatever happens in the future means nothing. And it doesn't find them naked but as those who are garbed upon with a greater garment, those who abide in an eternal dwelling. That's what he's desiring for the people that who have the spirit and those who have yet to be found in the spirit. So, it's, it's understandable why these things are misinterpreted, mistaught, misunderstood. But search it out. So as we look at the parallel of uh, Romans 8, say Corinthians 5, what we just read, I think it's important that we go backwards a little bit in 2 Corinthians and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to see how it also, and I know I'm throwing a lot of chapters and verses at you. And I want you to go back and research these things out yourself. But these things also correspond to Hebrews because in Hebrews nine, especially and in other areas of Hebrews, the writer speaks of the first tabernacle. And as long as that tabernacle stood, as long as the first tabernacle stood existed, the way into or access into the second, the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Now, remember, 
Paul in Romans chapter 5 says that we have by faith access into the grace wherein we now stand. But as long as that first house, that first tabernacle stood, that access was not present. Let me read that for a moment. This is Hebrews 9, chapter 1. Um, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter, one, chapter 9, verse 1 uh, through verse 8. Then verily the first covenant, the first covenant, talking about the law, had ordinances of divine service, worldly sanctuary, and there was a tabernacle made the first, wherein was the candlestick, the table, talking about, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, there's the holy of holies which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Now, you'll notice here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just to notice it. When he talks about the first tabernacle, he's talking about the candlesticks, the table, the showbread, and then when he speaks of the Holy of Holies, he brings in the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. You'll realize he says the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we know in the first tabernacle, the holy place, there was the table of showbread, you know, and the candlesticks. But there was also the golden censer or the golden altar of incense. The reason here it is the golden censer and he puts it into the Holy of Holies is he is embodying it into the man who goes into the Holy of Holies with the coals that come off of that uh, golden altar of incense. He puts it into the censer and comes into the Holy of Holies. So I think he's embodying that in the man, uh, the high priest. But we won't get off onto that. But anyway, uh, verse 5, and over it, again, Hebrews 9, verse 5, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest. That's why I think the golden censer is here. Uh, went to the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost in this signified that the way into the holy of, holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Now he's taking the picture of the tabernacle and particularly the holy place in the Holy of Holies and he's distinguishing those two compartments of the tabernacle, and he is identifying them in the light of the first covenant and the second, the first and the second, that which is natural, that which is spiritual, that which is testimonial, the shadow to the very heavenly reality. And that's the contrast being made here, the holy and the holiest of all. And that's a, that's a fitting uh, contrast, really, to depict... Judaism and Christianity, right? Or Judaism, the religion of the Jews, 
and being in Christ or being found in Christ, born again. This is presented in other letters in different ways. Uh, the contrast is said in different, many different ways. Uh, you have places where it speaks of the natural house, the earthly house, what we just read, or the house from heaven, the first body or the second body, the first man, the second man, the body of death and the body of the resurrection. And the things that Paul states in Romans 8, such as in the flesh or in the spirit, these are all contrast, con contrasting phrases used to contrast the same two things. We're not talking about different things here. It's also contrasted as the administration of death and the administration of righteousness or life. And keep, keep, keep in mind that this is all still in line with Paul's personal account of having righteousness of the law fulfilled within him by the law of life. That's how that transaction happened. So let's go back a little in 2 Corinthians from what we just read in chapter 4 and 5 and go back just a, just a hair. We're not changing the letter. We're going back and seeing where all this comes from that we've already read. It comes out of chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, we read, or let's say 7 through 12. If the administration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, that word also means holy, you can say. Glorious, you can also say holy. Because again, the differentiation of Hebrews 9 speaks of the holiest, holy place and the holiest place. It's not the same word. That's not what I mean. I mean, you could say it that way to make that contrast valid. If the administration of death, he's talking about the law here, the first covenant, written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. See, whole thing was to be done away, but it had a glory. How shall not the administration of the Spirit be rather glorious, more glory? Verse 9, for if the administration of condemnation be glory, there's the first, that's what Paul speaks of, a condemnation that is not found in Christ because now we're of another administration. If that administration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the administration of righteousness exceed in glory. Remember what we said. This thing that we have is of such an exceeding nature. There was a groaning for it. And that's why Paul laments that those, his own brethren in the flesh, natural brethren, have not yet made the transition from the body of death to the body of life. And his prayer was for them. So much so, again, he desired that he himself would be accursed so that they may partake of this. And it's, no, let's, let's not go there yet. Verse 10, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. By reason of the glory that excelleth, that which came in more excellency of spirit made the other, the first covenant, nullified in glory. It, did, it nullified the glory of the first. 
just like the coming of Christ nullified the glory of Solomon. Not that he didn't have glory, but the greater glory, the greater Solomon has come. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that they which have what? Such hope. We have great plain, use great plainness of speech. Does that say, seeing that we still have this hope of one day coming to that which is more glorious? No. Seeing that we have such hope fulfilled. We are not still waiting on a hope to be realized. We are those who have that hope realized. The thing that the face of Moses shined as a testimony of, we have. We have. And in so possessing it, we use great plainness of speech to declare what has come, what is real, and this is part of it. And this is the plainness of speech. Come to the more excellent, exceeding glory. Do not fail to come to the end of the hope. Do not fail and remain in the bondage of corruption, corrupt, corruptibility. Come to the liberty of a fulfilled righteousness. Come to the deliverance of a hope fulfilled and realized in this particular life, in one man. The Jewish system that God had designed was holy because it did adumbrate the greater. It testified of the greater. Thus it was glorious. But the antitype, the very image of the things, is much more glorious. It is more excellent. And this is the same as Paul differentiating between the holy place and the holy of hope. And I want to point out this entire writing is towards those first called to and intended for such a reality so that they would actually come and partake of the intention of God that does exceed in the excellency of glory. And if we are to even further validate these things as being true and what Paul desires for these people to come to the true redemption of the body, meaning from the body of death to the body of life, or the true adoption, meaning they would partake of the reality of being son, not by law observance, because that didn't make anyone sons. They were sons because they were led by the Spirit to that goal that God had always intended, and they have partaken of him. They have within them the spirit of adoption, the son himself crying, Abba, Father. They're sons you. But let's further validate the desire and what, Paul's heart toward his brethren and toward those subjected to vanity was. All we have to do is go further in the letter just a little bit to Romans 10 1 and see how these covenantal blessings and privileges that he laments that they are missing come to actually be realized. And we're going to read about that in a moment, but let's jump ahead. Let's see the end first because he's lamenting that they are missing out on the very things they were promised and intended for. 
how do those covenantal blessings, the privileges that God had given thee as a people, how is that actually apprehended? Because it's not happening by law, and it never shall. How is it truly partaken of? How is it realized as an internal condition? He says it, Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That they might be saved. Why? Because that's how this happens. To the saved, he's saying, know what you have. Don't miss out on the enjoyment of a present state of being. But to those who are missing out entirely because it's not yet even an internal reality, he's saying, come and be saved. Because that's where the transaction happens. That's where the transition from one body to another, that's the redemptive work that brings us from body to body, from man to man, from administration to administration. That's where it happens, that they would be saved. seems that these words intimate a connection between Romans 9 and 10, where he laments for their salvation, his brethren. Why? Verse 1 of Romans chapter 9, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Listen to these words. And see if this doesn't sound like a man in travail and pain, a man groaning. Not for himself, but for his brethren. I say the truth, I lie not, that I have great heaviness, continual sorrow in my heart, where I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. That's a big statement. That's a quite a phrase. We may get into that. I'm, I'm way, way past my time, I think. Let me check. Uh, I'm past my time anyway. Who are Israelites? To whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, the Messiah came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. This is a passionate plea. This is a desire in this heart. This is a travailing, a burst. of utter compassion for his people. They would be saved and partake in the man, Christ Jesus, in the Messiah himself, in the law of life being present with them, that they would come to know and enjoy the end of their subjection and know and enjoy the liberty from the bondage of corruption. Because he's going to go on here and say, listen, guys, 
the salvation I'm crying out for them to partake of is the hope that they have fulfilled. We're saved in hope. We're saved in that hope. That's our salvation. The hope that they had is our salvation. We're going to stop here and let me just read this. Because I want you to get this statement, who are Israelites? It's not a coincidence that this lamenting over his people is in the same chapter or in the same letter and basically right behind these statements that he's making. He's lamenting for them. He wants them to know. He wants them to, to truly experience the deliverance that he himself had. And again, he wants those who have been delivered from the bondage of corruption to know and enjoy and behold and grow in the light and realization of it so that they're not duped and deceived to go and try to find in the things of the flesh what God has already provided by grace in the realm of the spirit. term who are Israelites, the descendants. I'm going to read Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown here, their commentary. It says, what store the apostle set by this title as one which he could and did claim as well as any of those from whom he is now he has now been separated in faith may have been seen from Romans 11:1 1, 2 Corinthians 11:22 and Philippians 3:5 and i wrote with the use of this title israelites paul elicits all of the privileges that such a designation can warrant the noble case of their history and moreover the divine abundance to which they were intended this is what he's talking about who are israelites he, want, he wants to convey the absolute right that they have as God's people, while also presenting the horrible folly of their rejection of Christ, in whom these rights are exclusively claimed or partaking. And it will cover in a moment, or in the next session, this corresponds with Paul going back into Romans chapter Three, where he will say, what advantage has the Jew? And his answer is much in every way. Because to them was given the oracles of God. That corresponds to these very things that Paul is now saying. They have refused these things. They have rejected these things. How do they receive them? That they would be saved. Paul is, again, in this reality of Romans 8, he's crying out. He's calling those who are in a state of subjection to come and be delivered from such a subjection because his declaration to them before Agrippa and throughout his ministry was your hope has been 
fulfilled. Your expectation has come and is embodied in the resurrected Christ himself. Come and be saved. Come and be found in him. And in him partake of the promises and the inheritance that you were intended for. You're not intended for anything separate from this man. The things that we were intended for are only found in that man. And this is, this is a reality that we need to sit and think about. To understand that our salvation, those of us who still say, what's next? What more can God, what is, what's, what, uh, give me more, Jesus, give me more. There's God, the good stuff's coming down the road. We need to sit and consider the fact that Paul is lamenting because these people, had not yet been saved. Why? Because he knew salvation was the hope fulfilled. Not a bunch of stuff subsequent to salvation. Salvation was their hope fulfilled. We are saved in hope. Now, we'll stop there. Thank you for listening. Thanks uh, for your time. Uh, of uh, listening and this. I, I appreciate it very much. Amen.